Welcome to The Backstory with Dr. Ricky Singh. This podcast is focused on bringing you the latest research-based information about dramatically improving health, well-being, and quality of life. And here's your host, Dr. Ricky Singh. Whether you're a vegan or a vegetarian or someone who practices a keto diet, there's so much confusion these days about the various fad diets that are out there. So my guest today is a certified registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified holistic health coach. She's going to set the record straight today on dietary habits and even provide us some tips, especially when we approach the holiday season. So please welcome Janet Lau. Janet, welcome to the Backstory Podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Singh. I'm so excited to be here today. No, it's great. You know, this is a topic that comes up a lot, especially when I see patients, even at home, speaking with my wife and kids, is food and diet. Are we putting the proper stuff into our body? So I really want to learn from you and hear your expertise on this topic on how we can help ourselves and help our patients. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Like what sparked your interest in pursuing nutrition and diet as a career? You could say that the seed was planted early, I guess you could say since childhood. I was raised in a single parent household and my mom came from poverty. So, you know, the way she shared her love was through food. Along with that, you know, she saw that we were happy while eating whatever she purchased from the neighborhood. So I think you should also know that my neighborhood was predominantly fast food, processed food, junk food. So I was, my first experience in my relationship with food was, I guess, having these emotional eaters and, you know, being amongst fast food. Growing up, I've had a lot of digestive issues, which ended up to bowel movement problems. I had, you know, I was overweight, so I had body image issues. And I was often tired and fatigued with headaches and migraines here and there. So, you know, I've definitely had my fun with, you know, eating all those great foods, but at the same time, lots of discomfort growing up. So going from doctor to doctor, you know, them telling me, you know, what foods I should eat and what I shouldn't eat, as well as being bombarded by all these great, these marketing and advertisements of fad diets, right? So I've been through plenty of fad diets from low carb, no fat, you know, just eat fish and veggies, then started playing around with my own kind of makeup diets with because we know they're very restrictive. So I just ate, you know, the cabbage diet. Or my brother teased me with the corn diet. So, you know, and then my mom even said, oh, let's do the cookie diet because we all loved cookies. So that I had enough sense to say no to. But in the end, all of them were very restrictive and hence not sustainable. So unsuccessful, knowing I needed to do something about how I felt and all the discomfort, I decided to enroll in Hunter College's Hunter College Food and Nutrition Program. And I learned a lot throughout the process and was able to help my patients, you know, for a number of years. But at the same time, I felt something unfulfilled and something was missing. And I really wanted to rekindle my passion for food and nutrition because I really believe in it. So I decided to enroll in the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. And there, it really resonated with me with something that personally I've worked really hard to do to find that connection through food and nutrition. And so coming full circle, I feel you know I can work with my patients on a different lens because I've experienced it myself. So I understand how to better treat them and care for them and help prevent just by taking small realistic steps. 
No, I think, you know, what you said is it, it hits home for me too. And I probably am an emotional eater. I like to show my daughter love through food, but maybe I'm doing it the wrong way. Like if she behaves, I'll give her a chocolate. I'll make her a brownie. So I, I totally appreciate what you're saying about sending. And that's how my parents and in our Indian tradition, they showed their love through food and through cooking for the family. You know, you mentioned something about most of these diets being restrictive. And the word diet itself, you know, I say I'm on a diet. You know, by virtue of that sentence, people assume I'm not intaking something because I'm on a diet. Is that the right way we should be thinking about diet? Is it always restrictive? Are there other strategies than doing that? So, yeah, every time people talk about a diet, I, I think it immediately brings a negative connotation to that word where you would think, what can you eat and what can't you eat and people usually focus on what you can't eat so I really avoid approaching my sessions in that manner and what I really talk about is whole foods we talk about how to diversify whole foods to make sure that they have all the nutrients and and requirements there we also talk about how to make sure you fulfill all your flavor profiles so that you feel satisfied and also to include texture so I think with that they don't you know, feel that restriction and they understand that there's still a balance in that. You mentioned different diets that you've tried, like low carb or keto, Atkins, Mediterranean. Like what are, give us some thoughts on these diets. Do they work or is it not one size fits all? And how do you, how do people kind of navigate that on their own? So I, I approach every patient differently, whether they are vegetarian or vegan or carnivore and eat meat. I always meet them where they're at in the beginning. And we want to make sure that we understand all the macronutrients in their particular you know, frame of thought. So what are your proteins as a vegan or vegetarian? What, is your, what are your proteins if you do eat meat and can you eat other? Like what are, I want to make sure that I have all the proteins aligned so I understand all the starches and all the vegetables that you can eat. And, and diversify as much as we can within the, the diet that fits your life. You know, I tell, my wife says this to my daughter a lot, eat the rainbow. You know, eat vegetables and foods and things of different colors, different textures, different varieties. Is that kind of what you're saying in terms of diversifying and achieving all these macronutrients? Absolutely. Yeah, you can reach balance with any one of those diets, but as long as you do eat in variety and the color of the rainbow. So I know we talked about not being restrictive, but let's talk on a topic of being restrictive, and that's fasting and also intermittent fasting, which are pretty exciting topics. I know I've written a lot on intermittent fasting in the past, and I've practiced it. I'm actually currently enrolled in my intermittent fasting phase right now. So you know, fasting means abstaining from food or drink for a period of time, while intermittent fasting means kind of cycling between eating and non-eating. Tell us a little bit about fasting is it beneficial for the body and then also intermittent fasting how does that fit into this paradigm so fasting culturally speaking i think that's separate right but as far as fasting in general i guess you could say the only thing that i am a believer of is fasting at night right where when you know you eat and you are upright for about three hours to help digest and then you have that long sleep period where your body's resting and digesting and doing all the bodily needs to recuperate up until the next day which is anywhere I guess you could say from 12 to 14 maybe 16 hours so that's pretty healthy 
sometimes your body just needs a cleanse. Let's say if, if you have some bowel issues and your body needs just to rest for a, a moment of time, then that's also important to listen to your body. But fasting in general, I think, can be more harmful than it is beneficial. Just because if you leave elongated periods of time without eating, I find that it can cause you to have some brain fog, not be sharp. You know, your body needs fuel. And in order to get that fuel, you need to you need to eat. And when you don't, I often find, um, especially in practice, that patients often go through digestive issues where they have a lot of bloating or gas or they feel fatigued or tired. And then they find that they need to eat, which is the answer, and they and then they become ravenous because they've been not eating for such a long time. We talk about keto a lot, and uh, I tried keto, I think, a couple years ago, and it certainly worked. I lost weight quickly, but that brain fog that you mentioned was there. And, you know, we at work, if I don't eat lunch, my staff will use the word hunger and angry and say, Dr. Singh, you're getting hangry. So you need to eat something. So is there some truth to that? You need to feed the brain a little bit to calm down? And Oh, my God, absolutely. I mean, I tell my kids this all the time. I need to eat right now. Otherwise, I'm going to be very cranky and irritable. <laughs> and then start having that relationship with my kids through, you know, and understanding that you do need to fuel. Otherwise, all of these side effects can come about. So with, with intermittent fasting, you know, people lay it down saying 16-8 fast for 16 hours and eat for eight hours. And you're kind of suggesting we probably do a little bit of that anyway, just by sleeping through the night and not eating until maybe breakfast or lunch the same day. But have you seen in your experience, there is some value or implementing intermittent fasting in a patient's lifestyle? It really depends on the patient. I can't speak for all patients. Depending if they are making sure that they eat at least three meals a day and have it be complete, I think it could work for sure because they're fueling when they wake up and then they digest and then exert that activity or energy and then eat again at some point, hopefully within a four to five hour period, typically lunch and then dinner. So in that sense, sure, it could definitely work because they are still fueling within a reasonable Are there time. any risks or concerns that you would discuss with patients and say, if someone said, you know, I'm thinking about fasting or I'm thinking about intermittent fasting, what are some of the questions you would ask them or they should think about maybe this isn't the best path for them? Again, it really depends on the patient. So if, a, let's say a patient woke up at 4, 5, 6 a.m., right, and started to work at that period, and they ha- they're not going to be eating until... 11, 12 p.m., where they've left about six or seven hours without eating, and maybe they have a pretty heavy-duty type of job where they need to really be sharp mentally or physically. I think that can backfire because they're running out of fuel, and then they're not sure why, but they you know, are doing this intermittent fasting or fasting phase. So after some time, they might feel brain fog or headaches or migraines or discomfort, bodily discomfort, I think at that point it's really important to reevaluate whether continuing on this particular type of diet is, is helpful. For them. Yeah. You know, it sounds like what you're saying, you know, a lot of us take stock and put value into how much we're eating. So we limit the calories and then when we're not limiting, we can say and justify, I am allowed to now eat fast foods or eat foods that aren't really great for me. But it sounds like you're saying, don't worry so much about how much, worry about the quality of what you're putting into your body. 
whole foods and eating the rainbow and different textures. Is that something that you believe in? Is it less caloric intake and more quality? Or is there a balance of the two? I think it's a balance in all. So I, I always come, my approach is basically how you eat, when you eat, what you eat, and how much you eat. And they all count in making a balanced diet. It's all part of eating balanced and exercising and sleeping and getting all the, the proper integrative health. In my world, and we're going to pivot a little bit, is mostly spine and pain. So I deal a lot with patients who suffer from chronic conditions like degenerative joint disease and spine pain. And sometimes it's acute. They might twist their ankle running around with their kids and their ankle will swell. And that's normal because that inflammation is good for the body to heal. But when there's chronic inflammation in the body, your joints can degenerate, your spine can degenerate. And they come to me looking to decrease the inflammation. I give them medications. I give them steroid injections or other anti-inflammatories. And unfortunately, rarely do we get to talk about how diet is affecting the inflammatory status in their body. So can you tell us a little bit about that? What's the backstory on diet and inflammation? And are there anti-inflammatory or even pro-inflammatory things that we can eat? First off, I want to make sure that they have a good nutrition basics in mind, right? So we want to make sure we eat the colors of the rainbow. And lots of, you know, anti-inflammatory foods can be found in your fruits and vegetables, which, you know, should be in almost all meals of your, of your day. Other than that, there are typical pro-inflammatory foods that we can consider removing without being sure that it is inflammatory for you specifically, but just as a therapeutic time period, and usually I say anywhere from four to six weeks, we remove foods like gluten, dairy, corn, eggs, soy, yeast. Some people tack on nightshades because it's also considered to be um, inflammatory at times. Some people remove, you know, let's say they have a histamine issue. So it, and any other particular details where you find specific sensitivities to, let's say for some reason, you know, eating kiwi causes you issues, not sure why. So we would also consider that. And then we talk about reintroducing those foods. So it's not like removing them forever. And we talk about when they return in the follow-up to put back those foods, but in but strategically so that we make sure that maybe there is a dose and frequency here that we need to consider. Let me ask you a question about that specifically what you mentioned. So let's say I eat pizza. I like to eat pizza. But the majority of the time after I eat pizza, I will feel a certain way. Either I'll get some heartburn, I'll get some bloating or something. Now, how do I know what's the causative agent? Because pizza is pasta, it's bread, it's tomato sauce, it's cheese. How do we go about figuring out what item on that is actually causing the problem? That's a good question, Dr. Singh. And what I would suggest is to remove it altogether for, you know, maybe three or four weeks. And then we can start figuring out which of those ingredients maybe caused the issue. Was it the gluten in the bread? Was it tomato sauce? Was it the cheese or whatever toppings that you had? So we would strategically go about that for each food. So, so kind of a stepwise approach in eliminating the causative agent or all of them and then reintroducing things one at a time. You know, you talked about emotional eating, how to eat, when to eat, how much to eat, and I'll give you a personal story of myself. You know, I, I did surgery prior to coming to Cornell in Boston, and we took a lot of call. So I was on call every third night, every fourth night. And every post-call day, because there's so much work at the hospital, I rewarded myself with fast food breakfast. 
because I was on the way home and I ate an Egg McMuffin. And it's, in retrospect, it makes me feel bad saying this, but I must have had 90 to 100 Egg McMuffins that year. And my body reflected that. It was, I was bigger, I was out of shape, I was unhealthy. And that, I know, is not a great strategy. But how, how, what's a better strategy than that emotional eating, feeling the sense of, I deserve to eat this because I worked so hard, and that emotion tied into food? How do you decide that when you, when you speak with your patients? That's such a good question, and I, I like the topic of emotional eating. I think we all do it, too, right? Because it, it does give us that comfort and enjoyment. But I think that if you're, one, if you're cooking it yourself, it's definitely better ingredients, right? So if you made your egg McMuffin at home, then you can control what you're eating and therefore put lots of veggies, right? As opposed to buying in the store where there's probably little to no vegetables offered in that egg McMuffin. So there's no balance there. Along with that, you know, I'm a big believer in quality of life and in enjoying what you love. So not to take it away completely, but maybe reducing it down, let's say once a week or once every other week, something that you can still enjoy, maybe doing it more responsibly by adding some vegetables. Right. I mean, no question. I, at least I acknowledged that what I was doing was probably not the best behavior and I need tools on how to change that. No, I, lo- I love these tips. It's certainly, I hope it's going to help me. It's going to help some of the listeners listening in on how to approach the holiday season. I wanted to do something a little different today. You know, when someone's thinking about diet and nutrition, I'm sure they're Googling and searching things on the internet on what they should avoid and what behavioral changes they should make in their, in their body. So I wanted to talk a little bit about things that we see on the internet and your take and your comment on each of those, is it valid or is it a myth? Cutting out the processed foods and eating whole foods. What's your, what's your take? What's your stance on that? Absolutely. You definitely, we definitely know that processed foods are usually more sugary, more salty, more greasy, right? All foods that bring about cravings. And to make a good analogy with that, you know, nobody just eats one cookie or one chip, right? You end up eating more. But you never hear people eating so much broccoli that they passed out or, you know, so many carrots. So you want to keep that in mind by making sure it's more whole. What about alcohol? You know, we hear a little bit of wine here and there is good for the heart. It's good for antioxidants. What's our stance in terms of diet and nutrition when it comes to alcohol intake? I'm definitely an observer of quality of life and people enjoy it to relax, but it is ideal to lessen that amount because we know it is high in calories. So if you are you know, trying to lose a little weight or maintain it, then that would probably be the, one of the first things that we address as far as reducing the amount, depending on what, where you're and, at. And not only does the direct intake of alcohol affect you in terms of calories, but also, it also can affect your behaviors. You might be really strict about your diet and then have a glass of wine and then say, you know what, I'm going to cheat a little bit today. So there are probably some indirect consequences of alcohol intake as well. What about fatty fish or different oils that we try to cook with or even put in our salads? How are those? They're great. They are known to reduce inflammation. They're also helpful to reduce or control lipid levels. And they bring flavor and also add extra fuel for elongated amount of time, I think. You know, as, as part of the uh, Integrative Center for Well-Being here at Wall Cornell, New York Presbyterian, you know, we talk a lot about sleep. How do you address sleep when you speak with your patients and in relation to their diet and normal routines? 
I think it's important these days that people, you know, especially during these times, everybody's sleep habits have kind of been pushed back, which is fine for maybe a couple hours. But I find that if you miss the eight to ten hour, you know, eight eight to ten p.m. window of sleeping, people tend to get their second wind where they can stay up longer, and so. What ends up happening is that you know it just kind of throws your circadian rhythm off, and you know next day you wake up groggy, and so mindfulness goes out the window, and then you're not sharp and not knowing that there's options to how you choose to live in the day. You know, I think a theme that keeps coming up a lot is mindfulness. You know, we talk about mindfulness in, in our exercise, mindfulness in maybe meditation and biofeedback. But there's certainly a big component of mindfulness when it comes to diet and what we put into our bodies. Um, but I think the most compelling thing that you said today was a concept that food is medicine and that we all need to approach what we put into our body with a little more thought. So there's a quote that you have on your website by Hippocrates, which is the father of medicine, let food be thy medicine and let medicine be thy food. So what does this saying mean to you and how does it affect how you approach your patients? I'm such a big fan of that statement. I think whole foods is everything. It helps us thrive. And as long as we seek you know, food to nourish us, uh, it can also heal us. This is our holistic approach and, and integrative approach at that. So, Well, Janet, I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. I know you're busy seeing patients and sharing your expertise with them, but I'm going to benefit from what you said today and hope the listeners do as well. What if someone wants to see you as someone who needs help with diet and nutrition and things like that. What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Um, they can call our office, and our office number is 646-697-9358, or they can go at the Integrative Health and Wellbeing site. Wonderful. So we'll be sure to share those contact numbers and web information. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time, and hope we can chat again soon. Thank you for having me, Dr. Singh. Thanks for listening to The Backstory. Please subscribe, rate the podcast, and review The Backstory on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play Music. And feel free to share this podcast on social media or even your own website or blog. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. To learn more about Dr. Singh and his clinical research, please follow him on social media. You can also sign up for his newsletter by going to www.rickysinghmd.com. That's R-I-C-K-Y-S-I-N-G-H-M-D dot com.